Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Oh, hi. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR. Uh, I'd like to thank the Ruminations crew for another great show, uh, highlighting issues around homelessness and rooming houses. Uh, my name is Bill, and today I'm talking with Christine and Mark. Uh, they're both members of Al-Anon Family Groups. Uh, they're going to be talking about living with the effects of alcoholism and how Al-Anon has helped them to find hope and how to get their own lives back. Um, I guess I'm privileged to be able to say that I've known Mark for probably 40 years and Christine for, I don't know, 15 or so years. So it's a, it's a pleasure to have them on the show. Um, so we usually start talking about um, what it was like growing up, you know, sort of what happened, how we came to Al-Anon and, and, and you know, how things are now. So, uh, Christine, for you, what was your childhood like growing up? Uh, I had a pretty comfortable, average suburban childhood. There was my mother and father and my younger sister, and it was reasonably happy. I mean, there were the usual childhood fights with my sister and I and things with my parents, but it was, all in all, it was a pretty reasonable childhood. Um, One thing that I do remember, though, was when I was probably about nine or ten years old and my aunt used to come over to my parents' house and she was obviously quite distressed about things and would there'd be private conversations between her and my parents about what was going on. And afterwards my mother told me that apparently my uncle was an alcoholic and he was in AA and she told me some of the things that were happening in that family and I never realised because we used to have family get-togethers and Christmases and that and my uncle seemed a pretty happy sort of fellow. Um, He did like a drink, but that was all. And um, also I became aware that my aunt was in uh, something called Al-Anon. That was the very first time I heard about it. And I knew my mother told me that my aunt found a lot of help and support in Al-Anon. So that was my introduction to the existence of Al-Anon. And the rest of my childhood teenage years went on as usual but I never thought that Al-Anon would figure in my life sometime down the track little did I know. (laughs) So how did you meet your husband? Uh, We were university students and um, we seemed to hit it off quite well and um, we got married in our early 20s and life was seemed okay we were saving for a house and had a bit of a social life and both working and everything looked pretty good. Things so, seemed on track. So you didn't notice anything about his drinking that would cause you a problem, that you know, concern? No, there was nothing then about his drinking that made him any different to all our peer group. People would drink, but there didn't seem to be it didn't seem to be a big thing, an excessive thing really. Yeah. No, she is. Yeah, I think I think they were pretty free drinking years, weren't they? They were. Yes, that was part of university life. Yeah. <laughs> so, what changed? 
Uh, we got married. Um, we had two children after a few years. And when our children were preschool age, I became aware that my husband seemed to have a different attitude to alcohol. It became pretty important in his life. He had a business and he had clients in the business and so socialising and drinking was a fairly major part of business with clients and he would go out for lunches and have long lunches and he'd come home from work and be obviously pretty inebriated and then keep on drinking at home too and I thought this doesn't seem right. It wasn't the way other people I knew had a relationship with alcohol. His was, he seemed to find alcohol was a very important part of his life and I started to worry about what was going on. So did you notice a, a gap growing between you because of the drinking? Definitely there was a gap. He, yeah. I think alcohol was more important than anything to him, more important than the family and, and so on. And I tried to talk to him about my worries about his drinking and I had concerns about his drink driving um, and where, what the future held and I tried to talk to him about those things but it seemed to fall on deaf ears. We would have... There were arguments too because he was unreliable. He wouldn't sometimes come home at the time he said he would and then I would be up, awake, worried, pacing the house, imagining all sorts of things happening. Um, and then he would get home and be quite drunk and I would get very angry and there'd be a big fight. <laughs> um, and nothing seemed to change at all. Yep. <laughs> Sounds pretty typical. Yeah. Um, talking about the alcoholic, I've... I interview a lot of people on the show and a lot of alcoholics when asked about their partner, what, what, what did your partner think about your drinking, um, really don't know because they were focused on the alcohol and the partner was focused on them so they never really saw eye to eye on that issue that you know, the, the, the partner was out of the picture, if you like. They were in the way and I think that's a pretty common sort of thing in alcoholic relationships that the relationship with the drink is much stronger than the, any other relationship for an alcoholic. Oh, yes, that was definitely what I could see happening yeah. there. Um, so over to you, Mark. Um, you're quite different because your dad was an alcoholic. So Correct. what was your early life like? Um, I suppose, I, I look, I became aware of um, al the problem of alcoholism in the family. It was about five or six. Um, up until then, my father had been sober. Um, but we had had an event that caused him to have a pick up a drink, and um, like I've been told later on in life, that uh, we don't, um, or he doesn't, they don't start all over again. They start off with where they left off, which was six or seven years earlier. It was chaotic. It was dysfunctional. It was um, tense. It was sometimes violent. It was abusive. Um, it, it 
sort of fitted all the all the issues around family violence. There was blackmail, there was persuasion, there was lies, there was deceit, there was um, coercion, there was taking sides, um, all of those things in life that or in the family. Um, because because I was only a, t- a kid coming home from school and I'd get home and I'd open the front door and you could immediately feel the tension even though no one was in the house. And then my mum would come home from work and the tension would escalate tenfold, a hundredfold. And then from from that point on, she would just be worrying about when, when my father was coming home. Um, and that could be anything between uh, 7 o'clock at night through to 2 o'clock in the morning. So my, I took on the role of trying to be, you know, calmer down, let's have something to eat, I need to do my homework, all those sorts of things. But she would just get more anxious and more anxious and more terrifying and she was just worried about him getting home in one piece, you know, has he had a crash, all that sort of stuff. And then when, she, when he walked in the door, she'd want him out. Like, where have you been? How dare you? And then the, the arguments and the fights would start. I, I took up a position of being the peacemaker or the meat, meat and the sandwich and what's quite visual for me is um, in the hallway, you know, Dad would be at the kitchen um, door um, saying, cook my dinner, cook my dinner. This might be 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, that's about the latest he's ever asked that question. <laughs> and, um, and my mother would be at the bedroom door yelling, don't, don't do it, don't do it. And I was really torn between the two. And eventually my mum would go to... Go to go to bed and I would cook him his meal. No, you know, just bacon and eggs, you know, nothing fancy for him. And um, once I'd done it, he, he'd be in the lounge and he'd be asleep in the chair. And I'd just put the dinner in front of him, turn off the lights and go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a day-to-day. That was every day for, you know, five or six days every day until I was turned 13. Look, it got worse as as the days gone on. His drinking progressed. Um, and we, my mum would call him an alcoholic because he was in AA at one stage, and I just didn't understand it. I just thought, well, if you stop drinking and my mum stops yelling, life would be good. The home would be normal. But we kept it in-house. We didn't tell the world. Everything was what we thought was inside the house. Um, even when we socialised, my, my parents' friends thought, oh, he's a nice guy, he only has a couple of drinks. You know, he had a good singing voice, so he was the life of the party. Yeah. Um, and uh, so they, you know, all our friends didn't see it. They might have been aware, and my mum may have told them, but I just, um, you know, it was just a different world inside the house. I didn't have any friends. I didn't want anyone from school or my football club coming to my house. I was scared shitless. Mm. Did you think your mum was crazy too? Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, I I thought she was more crazy than my father because, you know, he was drinking, but she didn't have that sort of resource. Excuse, yeah. Excuse. <laughs> and she was just so over the top with everything, you know, and it just got worse and worse as, as the days and the years went on. And um, and it just seemed, in one sense, it seemed quite normal. This is what's going to happen tonight. But yet at the same time, it was like, well, what's going to happen next? Something's is it going to get worse? Yeah, but it, I mean, as I said, it did get worse. As I often say at meetings, you know, the last thing I thought about when I went to bed or went to sleep was what's going to happen tomorrow, and when I woke up is what's going to happen today. Um, and I look, I I suppose my attitude was that I in kind supported my father because he was getting battered and beaten uh, verbally um, from my mother, and and I couldn't see see why my mum was doing what she was doing but 
that's alcoholism. We're all involved. Um, whether we like it or not, we participate in it, and I, I'm as guilty as them. Uh, in my family, I'm an only child, so the, the pecking order was mum, dad, me, and the dog. So the dog used to get it yeah. from me because I had to release uh, some some tension out of it. I mean, I don't think I really beat him up, but I beat the dog up. But I just yelled at him and that sort of stuff. But that was the day-to-day, week-to-week activities in our home. Mm. It didn't so, change. So what what was the trigger to change all that? Well, the trigger for for um, for that was my mum all of a sudden started going to Elanon. I didn't know what Elanon was, but she was just going out, jumping into this car and driving away and coming back a couple of hours later. And after about two or three weeks, I just started to see a change. She wasn't focusing on him, my father, about what he was doing. She was focusing on herself. And at that point, I thought she was crazy. She's turned the beach. She's off the charts. You know, how can you be one thing one week and now this at this time? And But the other part was that, um, you know, she fo- as I said, she focused on herself. She didn't worry about my father and his activities. And he started to notice the change. He started to think she was having an affair. You know, that sort of stuff. Oh, that would be fun, wouldn't it? Um, and, and, I, and I said, I just sat back and watched and thought, what's going on? She, um, after about, I think about a month um, or so, she took me to an Elanon anniversary and I sat there, front row, hard seats, looked at the banners, you know, the steps and the traditions up on the wall, listened to the speakers, didn't like the hard seats, didn't like the hall, didn't like the, the word God on the banners. And when we finished, when the meeting finished and, and there was these other members and team members around me, I just put up the brick wall and denied everything. It wasn't my problem. He drank, she yelled, it's now stopped, it should get better. Had no understanding of alcoholism, had no understanding how it affected me, um, and I just walked away from that meeting saying, no, I don't need to go. Okay. So what happened? What was the, what was the change that <clears throat> caused you to go, go to Al-Anon? Well, well, it was a, yeah. yes, it was about four or five months later, um, you know, well, I suppose I'll go back a little bit. About two months after that, my father found sobriety in Melbourne Cup Day. So it's a significant, I can't forget that day. And um, he he started going to AA. So I thought that was a, that's a positive change. We would move house, get a new car. I'd move out of the school I was going to. All things I thought a normal home would be or family would be. But it didn't change. We went away on holidays. It wasn't the best experience, but um, we got through it. And then um, <clears throat> um, about I don't know, early April, March, April the following year, I was coming home from school on the train. And there'd been a lot of things happening at home, and I was the creator of them. I would just stir them up and um, because I'd learnt off experts how to... How to target people and how to get a reaction and I just sat in the train going home and I just thought I've had enough of this I want to change I want something's got to change and so therefore it had to be me so I got home and I told told my mother and she said I'll, I'll come to with you to the meeting or the other team meeting tonight it was a Monday night it was at Cheltenham and um, so my mum went there and um, and I um, I went with her and went to the other team meeting and so over the next four or five weeks, I just sat and listened and realised that my life wasn't as bad as the others in the room. Um, their parents are still drinking and they could still smile about it. 
my dad was sober, my mum was coming to Al-Anon, or and dad was going to AA, and I couldn't crack a, fu- crack a smile about that. So it really sent me a message that things had to change, and it was a good change. And just being with other teenagers and sharing the experience and the knowledge and, and just having that opportunity to talk about it because, you know, alcoholism is an isolation, creates an isolation environment. And now I was actually stepping out and starting to talk about my experiences in an active alcoholic environment and now a sober environment. Okay. Um, so what what did your parents think when you started going to al or al Well, I'm not too sure what my dad thought because we were still struggling with we were still struggling with communication. I was a teenager, you know, you don't talk a lot to your parents. But my mum thought it was really good just the opportunity just to share and just to hear other other kids talk about their experience. Um, and she she certainly supported me going there and supported me going to other other LRT meetings and socializing with the other LRT members, which we did over the over the coming years. Um because she just saw the benefit of her for herself and going to Al-Anon. It took away the focus off the pro- um We recognised the problem, but it took away the focus off the problem and all the person and focused on ourselves about her own well-being. I mean, her experience, I assume, going to Al-Anon just woke her up to the fact that the disease is a family disease. And that's a really important thing to do that we're all affected, whether we, you know, I used to think going to my bedroom, putting the headphones on and listening to my music would, would be an avenue to escape. Insulation. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but, you know, physically I'm in my bedroom, but mentally I'm in the hallway. Yeah. Yeah, it's very difficult to escape, isn't it? But, yeah, you can think you're, you're not worried about it, but you're just blocking it out, using something to stop it influencing you right now. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, so we might take a break. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Uh, we have uh, podcasts of the show are available um, on 3cr.org.au forward slash living free and they're also there on iTunes if you want to look us up. Uh, if you wanted to contact us, then you can either call the station on 9419 8377 or send us an email at 3 at com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter if you want to follow us at 3, at 3CR Living Free. Um, usually we play a community service announcement as well, so this one's from uh, Friends of the Earth Food Co-op. Uh, hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. I, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. La, la, la. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Ah. Um, I'm talking to Mark and Christine about alcoholism and the family disease and how Alanon has helped, helped them. Um, so back to you, Christine. Um, I think when we finished, you were talking about becoming, I guess, increasingly in conflict with your husband about his drinking and him not concentrating on the family. Um, so how did that progress for you from when your kids were little and it becoming a, you know, a problem in your daily life? How did life continue for you? 
Well, for me, it became more stressful and anxiety-inducing because I was dealing with various events that I tried to control but I had no control over. I would um, do things like find out information about healthy drink, uh, safe drinking and alcoholism and I'd talk to my husband about them and he just fell on deaf ears. He didn't want to hear anything. And so I would become more distressed and more worried about things. And I was also trying to make life the best it could be for the children and I would be shielding them from a lot of things, I think, but taking it all on myself. Um, And it was a struggle for me. Um, I felt life was pretty stressful and whereas my husband was seemingly having a really good time. Yeah, enjoying life. (laughs) Enjoying life and I became the warrior. I was like the responsible one. Yep. The mother, managing, watching and worrying. Yep. So given it was before the internet age, so how did you get the information about alcoholism? must have been a bit difficult. Yes, it was actually. You don't realise how much the internet is important in our lives when you think back to those days. I used to go to the local library and borrow books about alcohol and alcoholism and I also used to go to a university because my daughter was at university and I would borrow books from from there on her with her card and okay, read yeah. up about it. Okay. So you must know a lot about it then. I did know a lot about the science and... Um, biochemistry of it but a lot of that didn't really help with day-to-day living with someone whose drinking was so major in their life and understanding the effects on me I wasn't really clear about I knew I wasn't happy and I wasn't in a good place but I didn't really know what to do about it yeah so were you monitoring your husband's consumption of alcohol yes I was I um would watch how much wine or whiskey he was drinking. I would tally up how many standard drinks he was having a day and the figures were alarming for me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd try and talk to him about it, but it didn't help. It didn't make any difference. He didn't want to hear it. No. Well, particularly if he's been drinking, that's the last thing he wants to hear. Yes, it would trigger off more tension and arguments and he didn't want me interfering in all that. Mm. So... Was was it significantly worse when you had teenage children? Uh, yes, it was because his drinking was becoming more entrenched. Um, he was his business was going well, um, so I didn't have the worries of um, the financial worries at that stage, um, and I didn't really realise that someone can can have an alcohol issue but still be high-functioning. But now I know that alcoholism can come in many guises, right from the person in the park who is drinking something cheap out of a brown paper bag right up to anyone in society. Um, Alcohol can be affecting their life and the life of those around them. Yeah, I think most people assume that an alcoholic is somebody who is not functioning, but uh, the normal alcoholic is a high-functioning person. Yeah, that's Mm. right. Yeah, Mm. And, And therefore gets away with it because the public perception is that you have to be down and out. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, uh, So were you obsessed with his drinking? 
yes, I definitely was. It was probably the thing I thought about most in life, worrying about it and thinking, trying to think of ways to get it to change. And occasionally I would... I didn't talk very much with people I knew about it because probably I, I thought that they would just think he was a great bloke, life of the party. He might have a bit too much to drink, but they didn't know how it panned out on the home front either. Um, but a couple of times I talked to doctors about it, didn't get any sort of help or joy or anything from those um, encounters, those things, so I didn't sort of bother with that. I just was struggling along on my own as best I could, I think. Yeah. Did, how did you find, you know, socialising with other couples, you know, like going out to dinner and things, was that a, was that a problem? Oh, quite often it could be a problem because... Um, he would – I remember one time he um, started talking to various people in the restaurant um, and was getting embarrassingly over the top with them and I could see that the other couple we were with were very uncomfortable with what was going on. Um, and so they sort of prompted me to go and fix it up and so the expectation was that I was going to extricate my husband from this this stuff and fix it up and – tidy him up and bring him home and so other people were also putting some responsibility on me to manage his drinking debacles and um, I resented that because I didn't want to take on those responsibilities, someone's behaviour that I couldn't control and then I'd have to sort of patch it up and pick up the pieces and I felt that people were perhaps judging me too. Yeah. Yeah. Circumstances. Yeah. So what about your parents in law? Were they did they have expectations that you would solve the problem? Yes, there was one occasion that my father in law um wanted to have a talk with me because my husband had gone along to his father's to his the work in the morning and um had asked his father, Can you can we have some whiskey? And so my father in law thought he would talk to me and he said, um there's alcoholism in the family and uh, I don't think that my son should be wanting to drink in the morning and I'm a bit worried. Can you have a talk to him and fix things up? <laughs> and back then I sort of thought, oh, okay, I should be doing this. This is my responsibility to fix it up. So I went to my husband and I sort of said, oh, your father thinks, you know, you shouldn't be wanting to have a drink in the morning. There's a problem. And, of course, again, it was water off a duck's back. But I never thought to say to my father-in-law, perhaps you talk to your son about it. It's not for me to, to take that responsibility on. Um, but I did feel like it was partly my fault that I was to blame too, somehow. Yeah, yeah you are a partnership after all. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, Mark, um, so you got into Alateen when you were about... 13. Four, 13, 14 or so. So how long did you stay in Alateen? Um, well, at that stage, Alateen ran till about, I think it was 21, at that, um, and then you'd move on to some to somewhere else, um, either be it Alanon or you just leave because there was no space at that point in time yep. to go to. <clears throat> but around, um, around the 19, 20, 20 mark, um, I took the opportunity of going to an, to an Al-Anon meeting with my mother in Hawthorne, 
And uh, while it was good, I thought, I don't want to be sitting in a room full of older ladies because at that stage, you know, I'm 20 and these people are probably in their 40s. And I'm thinking, oh, this is not the place for me. So fortunately enough, someone else, um, another member of myself, we got together and we decided we needed to have, have a create another meeting or another space within the Al-Anon LT framework and we and we called it in between. So we're in between LT and and Al-Anon. Um and that group you know, that group flourished. Um it ended up being we had two two meetings, one on the south side of the river in South Yarra and one on the north side over at Essendon and we would have up to Mooney 40, Ponds. Mooney Ponds, yeah. yeah. Exactly. We would have up to sometimes 40, 40 members turning up. Um, you know, it was a slow grow, but we got there and it worked for both sides. It was a place where, because we're in that stage of life and all those sorts of things, it just fitted. It was a, it was just the perfect storm to happen, and that's what happened. Um, because we're all, you know, we're all studying or either started working. There's a whole range of issues. We'd been around the program, or Alatine and Alanon, for uh, you know for six, seven years. Some, some are a lot less. The big thing I noticed the most was about it was the socialising. It was being about trying to be normal in different scenarios and different situations, and being respectful for each other. And that was a that was a bonus. But it was a good place to be, and it was a fun time to be. Right. Okay. Um, so after, I guess the the in betweens morphed into Alanon. Correct. Yes. It went well. It went from in between us to young peoples, and then oh, okay. you know, as we grew older, we just thought, well, we'll just drop the young people because we're past it, and we moved on to Alanon. So, um, and that's where I've stayed ever since. It's, it's, so it's it's kind of feels like you have to qualify for Alanon. You know, that's sort of get the years up in the in between us of the young people, and but it just it was a space that attracted people. It was a space that. Um, just grew that's what i liked about it and it it just it was the right as i said the right space the right time yeah. all the things that counted yeah so of of all the alatinas that uh, and in between us that you're with how many made made that transition to alanon now yeah i don't know because they've all moved on to different directions different states but there's probably look i'd say there's i'm guessing probably only half a dozen that I that I would know of off the top of my head, um, that have that have carried on from the in between as young young peoples into Alanon. Um, there's that I I can recall. There's probably three or four that I still see. Um, you know the the young peoples that the young peoples of South Yarra because it went from in between to young people. Yeah, yeah. We had we had some first. You know, we had the first member of our group to be pregnant. You know, and I still know that person, yeah. which is great. You know, and her son's in her thirties or something like that. So, so that you know, out of it comes really long term friendships. You know, and that's that's the bonus. You know, and and it's the opportunity to talk to, them. and you, you've got that something common, and it's called alcoholism, unfortunately, but it's a it's a starting point, and it's just it's just been terrific over the years. Mm. Okay. Uh, and things changed in your life, didn't they? Uh, so after, what, 30 years in Alanon? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, I yeah, moved through Alanon, um, Alateen in between us and in Alanon, and it's something like about 30 years later in, in the program. Um, I, um, so I met her, met her. Well, she was going to Alanon at the time, but she was also an, 
a member of AA and we decided to um, go out, et cetera, et cetera, and then get married. And thought, well, you know, she's on a program, I'm on a program, and, you know, it, it should be okay. You know, that's, that's the hope and the joy. Um, but over, and that seemed to last over about three or four years, and then things started to change. She started not going to AA, started to um, visit many doctors because she thought she had a problem with something else, be it mental health. I mean, not that I knew a lot about it at that stage. Um, and also she was starting to medicate various different prescribed drugs. So it was a long, it was a, a path on the downhill sl- slide, really. And um, and I look, I persisted thinking that being around, being supportive um, would be a good thing to do and not abandoned. Um, and walk away, but over the next three or four, well, three years, because our marriage only lasted about seven, I decided that it was time for me to leave. Why? Because I needed to look after myself. Two, it was just affecting me in all parts of my life, and that wasn't what I wanted to be, to, to be or happen. And um, and then really, I did it with the support of others in making that move. I mean, I left. I didn't abandon. I left her. I left the home and moved in with friends of mine, because I didn't want to leave her homeless and kick her out and, and etc. Because she wasn't working, um, but she needed some some support, albeit from a distance. Another word is really that's called detachment. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. being around. But you know, I can still support her, but I I get on with my life, and that's and that and so after about. Um, after about another two years, then we divorced. Um, I have seen her since, and um, she seems fine. We can have a conversation, but I think it's probably been almost 10 years since I've seen her now. I don't know what she's doing. I focus on myself. Okay, yes. thank you. Well, listen, we might take another break. Um, I'm talking to Mark and Christine, and we're talking about alcoholism, the family disease, and how Alan and family groups can help. Uh, I guess, Christine, we so you've got teenage kids, you've got issues with your husband's drinking. So what was the trigger to find help? Yes, there was a, a definite trigger there. By this stage, we had three children ranging over our teenage years. Um, our daughter was at university and our middle son was in his second last year of school and the youngest one was in his last year of primary school. And what happened with the second son is that he um, he didn't seem right for a few months, but it it culminated in a psychotic episode, and um, we had to get medical help for him, and um, he was put on medication. They didn't give us a diagnosis at the time, but I had done enough reading to know that it was probably a pretty serious thing. He had during his teenage years dabbled a little bit with marijuana, which wasn't ideal, and I'd talked to, to him about it, but you can't tell teenagers. Um, so he had to drop out of school for the rest of the year and try and recover, and um, he had a part-time job as well, which I was supportive of because I thought it was good for him to get back into doing something productive. But about six or nine months after the psychosis, he uh, started, we became aware that he was 
seriously involved in drug scene and it turned out he was using heroin. Um, and, of course, that precipitated even more tensions and stresses and dramas in our family um, with my husband who was drinking and my worries that were already existing with him and our son's out-of-control behaviour and the worry and all that with him. Um, and my husband and I could not seem to see eye to eye about what should be done with our son. My husband, I, I believed he was in denial about his son having um, some sort of mental illness. He was really bothered by the stigma of it. Um, and he sort of went into, like, there's nothing wrong with my son, and so on and so on, whereas I would maintain that the treatment we should follow all the treatment and everything should we should just accept the situation for what it was. Needless to say, I was terribly worried about our son too and it was something that sort of stressed me out a lot too. Um, so that I think the dysfunction in our family sort of was multiplied. My husband and I, the tensions were there, we couldn't agree. Our son was using sort of manipulative techniques to play my husband and I off each other as well. And the other two children were being affected uh, by all the tension and, and chaos in our family. Um, I decided then, I think, that I needed something more, something to help me. And I think I remembered about... Al-Anon and AA. My husband wasn't going to do anything about his drinking, but I thought I'll try Al-Anon and see if there's something there for me because I couldn't find anything else to help our family. And so I f found out where uh, a nearby meeting was and I fronted up one night and I thought I started to feel this might be okay, there might be something here. I don't think I really was expecting a lot. I, I probably had some idea that I hoped they might be able to give me some clues to stop my husband's drinking at least and get my husband and I on on the one side to help with our son's condition. But I didn't really think they might have those answers. But there were people in Al-Anon who talked about what had happened in their lives. They'd been living with alcoholism in families or with friends and Yet they seem to be getting on with their lives, getting satisfaction from life and be quite happy. And so I kept coming back to the meetings. At least it was a safe place. It was a quiet place. There wasn't yelling or screaming and all that happening. And it was just a place of peace there. And I think also I was very taken with what I saw in the steps on the wall, particularly step one that um, about... Um, admitting that we have no control over alcoholism and that our lives were unmanageable. And I think to see that in writing and to it acknowledged that I had no control over alcoholism and my life was unmanageable and it really resonated with me. So I kept coming back to the meetings and gradually soaking up all the things I heard in Al-Anon.
and starting to feel better about my life. And I didn't find out how to stop my husband drinking or anything like that. But I learnt how to detach from what was going on to some extent and to build my self-esteem up and to realise that I deserved something more out of life than just obsessing over my husband's drinking and wiring myself sick. Yeah, yeah, you're a, you're a worthwhile person. You're valuable, yeah. Yes, yes. And look after myself and not... I'd always put other people first and uh, there's, it's no good. If, if I was no good, then I wasn't there to help them. So I had to make sure I was okay. And so I had to do those things to make myself get better. Okay, thank you. Um, Mark, so once you decided to leave your partner, so how did life change for you once you were sort of free of alcoholism in, in your daily life? Um, well, obviously the better, but it, it changed in the fact that I, I could focus on myself and go still go to my meeting on a, on a Thursday night, but it was about focusing... Well, the th- I suppose the things in my life were work, um, going to the football, but also the, the key thing was looking after my own health and well-being, my mental state, um, and just letting go of the of the the past, um, but also recognizing that okay, there's something I did, and what learnings can I have from it? Um, so recognizing for me that having relationships with people who have addictions is not a good thing in my in my eyes. So steer clear of them. But yeah, so that's one aspect. But it was around just my own um, my own growth in Al-Anon, my understandings. How do, how how do I perceive these steps? Even though I've been in Al-Anon a long time, or Alateen in Al-Anon a long time. I was still learning, you know, which really sometimes annoyed me. You know, you've been in a, in a program 30 years, you think you know everything. Well, sadly, you don't. You know a lot, but you don't know everything. And I just sometimes walk away from those meetings and think, I've just learned something new. It was a focus on me. What do I need to do to make my, my, make my life better? Yeah. That so, was the focus. Yeah. So what do meetings do for you? Recharge my battery. Um, give me an opportunity to share my experience and my uh, strength and hope um, and how to apply the Illinois program to our lives. But I always walked in there thinking, what can I learn tonight? What are the opportunities that I can learn? Sometimes you don't, but it's a space where it's an hour and a half, maybe two hours by the time you finish your cup of tea and a biscuit. It's all about you. Yeah. Good. The rest of the world don't matter. You know, it's all. I'm going there for me. I don't care. You know, I care about others, but you know, it's one of those. I care about me first, but and the others second. And because life was used to be the other way around, you'd be at the bottom of the ladder, and everyone else would be above you. And I thought that I like the way it is at the moment. I'm a top. I'm looking after myself. I can do what I can do without too much damage to other people around me. That was the important thing. Alan gave me. That piece. It was a haven. Yeah. A rest. Yeah. Not an escape from the light, from the world, but it was an opportunity to, to sit there and reflect. What's it been like for the past week? What can I do better? What can I... It's all those, yeah. You know, what can you keep? What can you stop doing and start doing? Those sorts of things. And it's just where I am on a Thursday night. No better place to be. Right. Okay. Um, now, now, Christine... 
you're concerned about your son's drug use, husband's alcoholism is still a problem. So what did you do? Well, I felt trapped in the family relationship and I had to make the best of it. And the best way for me to do that, I could see, was to go fairly regularly to Al-Anon meetings and, as people say, to recharge my batteries and to learn, pick up skills on navigating that tricky road, living with someone's addictions to other substances. And it's a really tricky road. Um, sometimes I do it okay and other times I don't, but I've over the time I've been in Al-Anon, which is probably 15 years now, I've learnt so much and the time in the rooms is a time of healing for me and learning new things and then going out in the world and trying to put them into practice as best I can um, and then come back again for more help, more support, more um, learning of new things too and there's always something new in Al-Anon to help me. Um, Eventually my husband and I separated and we're now divorced because there was a precipitating event but I realised that the children now were of an age where I could go my own way and I needed to be completely away from his drinking and um, get my life back together again. And all the time in Al-Anon had been good enough for me to build up my strength and self-esteem so that I could actually go out there on my own because I never really would have thought I had the confidence to end a marriage. But I I actually did and got through those difficult months as well. Um, So did the the alcoholic was obviously still drinking, so was that a particularly tumultuous time? It was still tumultuous because even though I'd changed um, considerably in how I was going about my life and I wasn't so entangled with all his happenings, his doings, I think um, his drinking and behaviour seemed to escalate more to try and pull me back into the whole scenario to get me um, enmeshed more in it. Um, And there were more and more worrying events that were happening, but I wasn't as affected and dragged down by them as I had been many years earlier. I could sort of stand back a bit and see them for what they were. But there were still significant effects on aspects of my life by being married to someone when these things were going on that I knew that sooner or later I'd have to go my own way. Right. Um, Okay. Thank you. Um, So, Mark, um, you've been in Al-Anon for a long time. So what other things do you do in Al-Anon? Well, service. I think it's one of the good things about um, Al-Anon. It's an opportunity to give back to the to Al-Anon. It's a provide. It's taking up roles or voluntary roles within the organisation. You've got. Oh, look, I've been secretary treasurer of a group. I've been um, group representative. I've been district representative over the years. I've been the national coordinator for Alateen back in the early nineties. Because um, I mean, I. Alanon's across Australia and around the world, and so is Alateen. Um, and then uh, in in more recent time, I've been um, the president of the Association of Alanon in uh, in Victoria. Um, 
it's an, as I said, it's an opportunity to give back. You're working with other Al-Anon members. Um, they're all been in the pro- program a long time, and it's just about working together, harmony, understanding, cooperation, all those sorts of things. Look, I learned a long time ago from my my parents about um, giving back um, to something that literally has saved our lives, has saved our family. You know, God knows where I would have been if I didn't go to Alanon or Alateen. Um, I certainly wouldn't be here, I think. And, um, you know, it's given me an opportunity, gave my life back, gave the family back, and it's an opportunity to give something back to the to uh, Alanon as a whole, across either at group level, state level and national. It's it's rewarding, rewarding I should say. Um, sometimes it could be challenging, but most of the time it's rewarding. It adds value to the program to you as a as a person over the years. Okay, thank you, uh, Chris. What's what's your relationship like now with your son? Um, my my relationship with my middle child, who has the bipolar and heroin addiction, is is reasonable. But I have to manage a certain distance and detachment from what he's certain things that are happening. I try and be supportive and make contact with him but also give him the respect to look after his health himself and do those things himself that he needs to do so I think we get on okay and um, but it's always a fine line to walk there my relationship with my other two children is very good and the three children have a relationship with their father too Um, but I don't see their father and have much communication at all with him even though we do have or two sons who've got problems. The youngest one also has a mental illness but no addiction problems. Um, so, yes, my middle son has been in and out of rehabs and hospitals for various things and he has to do his own thing but he knows that I'm there on his side but I can't be taken advantage of. Yep, that's important. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, well, listen, I think we've just about run out of time, so I'd like to thank Christine and Mark for coming in and sharing their Alaron Family Group's recovery experience with us. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. I hope you're about to join us again next week when we're going to have a mental health special focusing on living with bipolar disorder, and I'll be joined by Todd and Sue, who are members of Bipolar Life. Uh, that's all we've got time for today, but stay tuned now for Black Noise Radio hosted by Kerry Lee and featuring black news, current affairs, music, sport, culture and the arts, all from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. Thanks for listening to Living Free today.